Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kubar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Mukul Mehra, Chief Medical Officer and Co-Founder of Illumicare, about how to deal with physician shortages and burnout. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Mukul Mehra, Chief Medical Officer and Co-Founder of Illumicare, and we're going to talk about how to deal with physician shortages and burnout. Um, welcome, doctor. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, to get started, uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about your company. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm a gastroenterologist by background. Um, I left my practice after guiding it through a merger um, and then an acquisition. And in in 2021, I exited my gastroenterology group, which is a natural, a national group in April. I had founded Illumicare back in early 2016 um, as a digital health technology. It's really a nudge platform uh, that's designed to provide insight at the point of care over the electronic medical record, uh, insight that's not readily evident from the existing EHR. All right, um, and I guess today, you know, we're going to talk about sort of, you know, uh, one of your products and sort of how it can help with, um, you know, dealing with physician shortages, which is obviously a huge problem, um, especially since the pandemic began. So I was wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about sort of the problem itself of, of you know, physician shortages and sort of what's, you know, what's sort of causing that or contributing to that. Yeah, physician shortages are a result of physician burnout. And even in my time in practice, physician burnout was there um, and creeping up even prior to COVID. Right. In fact, statistics suggested that 25 to 33% of providers had evidence of, of burnout even before COVID. And I think a lot of that comes from changes in the industry that are really not good changes for providers. Um, you know, the Arts Collaborative had a good analysis of factors in physician burnout. Um, EHRs are certainly a part of it, but they are not at the forefront of it. Um, you know, workplaces, workloads, uh, the lack of teamwork, feeling like you're at way, way down sort of the service role in, a, in an industry with many large gears and wheels and you're not influential. Um, all of these are problems. Having to spend a lot of time after hours on tasks and mm. bureaucratic and administrative tasks um, are dumped in the lap of clinicians and honestly nurses too. Um, and then the burnout just accentuated in the middle of COVID. You see patients dying, you do everything you can and they still die. You see people not vaccinated you try to encourage more people to get vaccinated and, and they're not. Um, and then you begin, you've entered this field of field of human service and the less influential you are in outcomes, coupled with this amalgamation of, of, of problems I mentioned um, becomes quite, quite problematic. And it doesn't help that we're almost two years into the pandemic and it's still going full force. So that doesn't help things any. Right. And I think a lot of providers feel that the pandemic is slowly entering this endemic phase. But look, when 
you have 15 patients to see normally in the hospital and now it's 20 mm-hmm. and the hospital's not doing anything to help you get back to your workload of 15, but you're seeing 20 because some of these Omicron patients are still getting admitted. Um, it's the nurses and providers that are still having to now manage increased workloads. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, one thing that I've been hearing from folks, um, you know, sort of coupled with this burnout is that, you know, it's getting hard to get new people into the profession because, you know, I think they kind of, you know, what they're looking at now is pretty discouraging. It is. And all of their friends get to participate in jobs and careers that are offering work-life balance. Right. Like, how is that happening for nurses and physicians? It's not. There is no work-life balance in clinical care or in inpatient care. Um, It doesn't exist. So it's an interesting paradigm for me as a clinician and as somebody who works as a co-founder of a digital health company. We're offering work-life balance strategies to employees at my um, digital health company, but my my partners in my practice, when I was practicing, they don't have that option. And so you're right. I, people see work-life balance opportunities in their career, and they begin to wonder whether they should pick a pure uh, clinical career. Um, and many more are going into careers where clinical skills in medicine um, are valuable, but it's not all about seeing patients all the time. Um, and I think that's the balance. That, of course, leads to a shortage in clinical care. Um, right, right. The shortage in frontline workers is much more problematic than a shortage of CMIOs. Like, I, I haven't really read many articles saying, well, there's not enough CMIOs or <laughs> there's not enough informaticists. And, and my friends are CMIOs. Um, in fact, some of them were clinicians who transitioned into that career as a nice bridge. So. Um. And, you know, these problems, like you mentioned, were happening before the pandemic, um, you know, even like the, the work-life balance and, and just sort of the feelings of too many non-clinical tasks being piled up on your plate. Um, you know, what was enough being done pr- prior to the pandemic to address this? Or do you feel that, you know, that's going to be have, have to be something that we deal with, you know, sort of when things calm down a little bit? I don't think so. I think when I... L- look at what was happening, there's a data deluge in healthcare. Everybody claims to have cool data, new data, exciting data, um, clinical data. Well, who's managing it? How is it being pushed? And there's a lot of gamification in medicine that had been happening behind the scenes, meaning behind the scenes to a clinician. Um, Reimbursement for health systems for an admission um, were dependent on the exact right verbiage being put in a clinical note. And well, you know, that may be worth 500 or 700 or 800 extra dollars to a health system. Well, you're going back and you're texting um, a physician or leaving a note for a physician, or you're um, asking them to answer these things called CDI queries that really have very little to do with our day-to-day management and bedside care of a patient. Um, But you're having to answer these things after the fact, during patient care. These are the administrative and bureaucratic tasks. Um, Well, can you change the words here? Well, did you mean UTI with sepsis? Um, 
you know, these are the kind of things that are worth money to a hospital so that they can get money from a payer. Well, the physician is the one having to adjudicate this all the while seeing more patients. Um, and, and this is a problem. This is a real, real problem. It's sort of what I call the gamification of medicine. It, it is not why any of us went in to be a physician. Um, and it's a product of electronic medical records and initiatives that are not front focused on the direct patient physician interaction. Um, and that, that's, that's a sad, sad occurrence, I think, in, in the profession. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, how could, how did your uh, company sort of come up with uh, a solution, at least to the, the EMR uh, side of things? You know, I'll be honest, the company didn't set off to do that. In fact, I wasn't maybe aware in 2014 or 2015 when we were trying to solve problems that this was really going to be a growing problem. And I was a full-time practicing physician. So the technology is an EMR overlay that gently nudges different providers at the point of care. Well, when you're providing insight or giving them information that saves time in their day, I think that's that's great. The first product we honestly released is one that focused on showing providers the actual cost of what they're ordering and when something cheaper could be considered that qualitatively was the same, at least. And that is a benefit to a health system more and more it's sort of a benefit to patients mm -hmm. now because more and more health plans are actually shifting inpatient costs to patients but in no way does that actually help a provider's day or their workflow um and i knew we had the right technology but that use case didn't address that and so i really wanted our next use cases to address that and one of the use cases that became really important to us was inpatient rounding and wake forest had developed an inpatient work list it's called whirl that saved providers 30 to 60 minutes a day because of the way this printed rounding list had all of the information that was available in the emr but in very disparate places it would neatly print sort of in small print just the way provider types liked it and your whole list of 15 patients for the day would fit on on two pages and we looked at this we looked at wake forest's innovation group and how they built this and wake forest had a problem they were like well we can use this at wake forest but we really don't know how to externalize this so that other health systems could benefit from this um, and so we technologically figured out how to externalize that intelligence and put it in to an Illumicare application called Whirl um, and you know that that's great I mean we have already I think five or six health systems um, that'll go live on it early this year um, you know anytime you sell in this business you're always asked like to calculate a financial ROI. I mean, right. I, I, I think financial ROI, we have to temper that with just ROI. If right. giving physicians 60 minutes back in a day, that, sh that should not mean that a health system should then make them do 60 minutes more work somewhere else. <laughs> right. It should be, here's my gift back to you as a clinician. 
of 60 minutes, uh, have coffee, go to the doctor's lounge. You need that downtime. And so we're super excited about rural. We've done other things in workflow too, where providers really have to sort of close care gaps, um, gaps in care. And, um, and it's something, it's an initiative that's really beneficial to a patient um, in the ambulatory setting. Well, where these gaps exist is very hard sometimes to glean when you're seeing a whole full panel of clinic patients. Um, and Alumicare really had done some pivotal work with an ACO um, in Nevada uh, across the state with excellent results in workflow and care gap closure, which is a benefit to the ACO and the patient. Um, and we were a time saver. And so that is an application of our nudge technology in spaces that bring benefit to patients um, and to physicians. And honestly, it's it's quite rewarding to do that. So. Uh, and how long has this been available? Well, the, our our care gap application has been available for over a year, and then we have a large um, plan, a Blue Cross plan um, in the southeast that um, is going live with it. Actually, already has as of December, and we'll cover over three million lives um, around the state with that. And Whirl has been live for just over a year also. So they're relatively new applications that are embedded in the same nudge platform that brought us to market back in 2016. Um, and, you know, obviously, it seems like you can't talk about anything without sort of weighing the impact of the pandemic. Has this been more useful? you know, because of the, you know, because of the pandemic, just in terms of, you know, since schedules are so crazy and, and things are so, you know, um, piled on, has it been able to, have you sort of gotten the, that kind of feedback that it's really been that much more helpful to folks? We have, especially in the ambulatory setting um, and with rural, uh, the feedback has been excellent. Um, they're both time savers. Time is of the essence now. And, um, you know, our next step is really sort of to do an analysis on clinician happiness and surrogate metrics um, around burnout, including direct feedback, using workflow enabling tools. And, you know, we look forward to doing that with, with Wake Forest, too. Um, and then our clients in the ambulatory setting around the, the GAPS application. Um, it's a pretty nimble technology. so. We're very focused um, on being care provider centric with our applications that that come about now. Um, what are you know sort of beyond that? What are some sort of do you have future goals for Illumicare that you know, have other th things you want to address um, going you know a little down the road? We do. Um, one of the great administrative burdens is electronic prior authorization. And there are companies in this space that are doing a good job. Um, electronic prior authorizations are an administrative burden and delay care uh, to patients. So our next two applications sort of work a bit um, in parallel. It is electronic prior authorization um, and automating it using an infrastructure um, that we've already built 
and are continuing to build to match patients to clinical trials. Um, so not to complicate the answer, but I participated in clinical trials as a, as a PI and um, have referred patients to clinical trials. And I, I participated in a trial on eosinophilic esophagitis, which is an allergic condition of the esophagus that can mimic reflux. And we were the third largest recruiters in the world on this study. And I really realized that one of the great missing elements in clinical trials as a therapeutic option is that we don't recruit physicians. We come out of training, we know all the drugs, we know which ones are approved. Um, we sort of know which ones are approved for different insurances and aren't for different insurances, or we find out sort of the hard way when you write something. But what we don't know is what trials are out there at our institution. Like we really don't. And more importantly, the trials have very specific criteria. And even more importantly, the thousands of pages of medical records contain elements that potentially could exclude a patient from a clinical trial. And when you have 18 or 20 patients in clinic and one or two aren't doing so great, well, you wish you had another therapeutic option for them. Right. Um, but looking through their record and looking through the clinical trials criteria are just too difficult. Um, and so we have a nudge platform and tethering this nudge platform using natural language processing and AI to clinical trial criteria um, and data mining of the medical records so that you essentially can electronically, quote, prescribe a clinical trial, um, which then sends a message to the trial coordinators what we release in April of this year. Um, and it's that same infrastructure that'll allow us to address uh, prior authorizations, which are very similar. Prior authorizations are getting a drug approved from a payer. Clinical trials are selecting a patient that you think would be beneficial for a trial or not. And so our development is really focused on both. And both in unique ways provide a value to providers um, because providers want to know about trials. Yeah. They'll decide whether or not to put them in. And, and an interesting stat is 84% of patients who are asked to consider a clinical trial by their provider will, will actually learn more about the trial. Um, so companies that just go out and recruit patients de novo, I think that's one of the problems in the clinical trial space. But. <clears throat> Yeah, so just getting more information about about the patients and about you know who you you're gonna have in the trial obviously is ideal. Absolutely. Well, you know, just the population. Look, there's many people that are mistrusting of a vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were able to capture with the direct patient-physician interaction. They're potentially even more mistrusting of a clinical trial without their physician input. So that's the problem in direct patient recruitment into trials. Right. So, um, you know, this tethering of the physician to considering clinical trials as a therapeutic option and concatenation with the patient. So it's a physician-patient journey into a trial, I think is what's missing. And it's a benefit to a physician. It's a benefit to a patient. And um, we're excited about that. Nice. Um, just getting back to the, the whole uh, physician burnout uh, issue for a moment. Um, what are your thoughts sort of on the future and sort of what can be done to kind of reduce that? I mean, obviously we've talked about, you know, some ways to reduce it. Are you, are you optimistic about sort of, you know, turning the tide, um, so to speak? 
I'm not optimistic. Um, I have a few theories and they're all not really workable. Um, one would be that every, anybody who requires me to use any HR, um, whoever it is, should give me a data entry specialist. Like what a poor use of a physician's advanced training skills <laughs> to make them a 15 or $18 an hour data entry specialist. And that's not meant to be condescending to data entry specialists, but that's what they've done. I mean, there's two plus three, who knows, plus hours a day that you're, da you're operating as a data entry specialist and a missed click, um, a wrong click results in four more clicks because you're not a great data entry specialist. So, <laughs> right. you know. When you could be doing so, something else more important, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and scribe, there are companies that provide scribes. There's a lot of turnover in the scribe industry. So you sort of want your scribe to learn the way you like to, you know, embed a note. And yeah. well, when a new scribe comes after four months, yeah, it becomes a little bit of a problem. And then who who's paying for the scribe? I mean, the EHR company's not paying for the scribe. The, health system may or may not pay for the scribe. Usually they don't. Maybe in the ER they do. Um, you're left to foot the cost of a scribe yourself because of an inefficient process because now you're mandated to be a data entry specialist. So building upon that, what I'm mm, not optimistic about but more hopeful <laughs> is that ambient technologies take over. So clinical documentation improvement is a whole industry. <laughs> and there's some really cool companies um, in this industry but they're still requiring providers to go in and change these subtleties and nuances in their clinical note. And honestly, all these CDI queries drive clinicians nuts. Like nobody gets excited about changing their note or doing an addendum in the note just so that you can say something so that a hospital can get reimbursed more. <laughs> right. um, ambient technologies, perhaps, and nuance is working on this, pick up a conversation between me and a patient and automatically transcribe it um, and then flag certain phrases, which if we gave additional detail that likely have very little significance in the patient physician interaction, but could in the reimbursement space, you flag it so you could add something here or there. That's cool because, you know, then I'm not really having to document. I can have a conversation, which more times than not is derailed by either typing or other things. Um, and then, so ambient technology is there. And then my favorite, which will never happen is let's decouple reimbursement from documentation. I know that <laughs> will create other problems, but, but like that is my great ask from somebody from the government, Medicare uh, payers, just decouple them like your note. I don't care how good your note is or isn't. Um, let's decouple reimbursement from clinical documentation. That doesn't mean you shouldn't clinically document properly, but you know, I mean, it's just silly. The clinical note every six months or a year is more worthless, the average note, than it was six months or a year ago. Um, they become more and more worthless. It's more and more data garbage in. Uh, this data garbage is leading um, to physician burnout and administrative tasks um, that are undue. And I think, honestly, it's it's a big part of the problem. And then it creates other problems down the road because the quality of a chart um, and the information in it has deteriorated 
So anyway, we're all allowed to dream, right? Especially yeah. on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I guess that's sort of a pipe dream. You don't see that ever happening, do you? But it'd be nice if it did. Yeah, I don't see it happening. Yeah. Um, there was a time when it existed. Um, but, you know, reimbursement strategies could be tethered to other things. They could be tethered to outcomes um, rather than what you've chosen to put into your note in the exact phraseology that results in more or less reimbursement. We're all after quality metrics in the end anyway. And so. Absolutely. Well, uh, here's hoping that, you know, maybe some of, some of that will happen and, and things can get a little less uh, crazy for, uh, for physicians. But um, uh, Dr. Mayor, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Thanks for having me. All right. That wraps up episode 46 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.